say a word of prayer. Abba, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my, our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Our Savior, our Lord, we love you. We bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The following prayer is attributed to Teresa of Avila. She lived in the 16th century. So I want all of us to read this prayer carefully. Christ has no body but mine. No hands, no feet on earth but mine. Mine are the eyes with which he looks. Compassion on this world. Mine are the feet with which he walks to do good. Mine are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Mine are the hands, mine are the feet, mine are the eyes. I am his body. Christ has no body now but mine. No hands, no feet on earth but mine. Mine are the eyes with which he looks, compassion on this world. Christ has no body now on earth but mine. This has been the prayer of Teresa of Avila of 16th century. Now, if we see this prayer, whether she said this prayer on her own or from where this prayer has come, we can see that it is based on the scripture. Because in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, it says, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Let us stop for a minute and think about that. You and I are the hands and feet of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a responsibility. If you and I are the hands and feet of Jesus, then we should have the mind of Christ to do the things the Lord Jesus Christ did with his hands and feet in the Lord, in this world. So today I want to draw our attention to the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. Let us turn our Bibles for the scripture reading taken from the letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Let us read this passage slowly, prayerfully, and let the Spirit of God minister to us. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit 
and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. This passage is one of the most glorious, most discussed and debated passages in all of Pauline letters. You know, from verses 1 to 4, Paul is encouraging the Philippians to have the mind of Christ. Now, from verses 6 to 8, Paul describes about Jesus Christ's pre-existence, followed by his incarnation and his death on a cross. He concludes his narrative with Jesus Christ's return to heaven as the exalted Lord of heaven and earth. There is no other name above the name of Jesus. Now, when you read the entire passage, and when we come to the come to verse 5, that verse gives us the clue. Verse 5 says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This verse makes it very clear that this passage is primarily designed to motivate Christians to have the mind of Christ. So today, let us confine ourselves to three basic questions. The first question is, what is the mind of Christ? The second is, what is the mind of man? And the third one is, how can we have the mind of Christ? What is the mind of Christ? What is the mind of man? How can we have the mind of Christ? So let's go to the first one. What is the mind of Christ? Now, whenever we are talking about our Lord Jesus Christ, 
we should always remind ourselves that we are talking about a person who was God as well as man. In other words, he was God-man. So when we are asking the question, what is the mind of Christ? It involves two aspects. First is how God acted as God. And the second one is how God acted as man. Only if we answer these two questions, we'll be able to understand the mind of Christ. So the first thing is how God acted as God. Verse 6 says, who being in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Who being in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now, in some of the Bible, we can read that who being in the very nature of God. Now, the Greek word that is used here is morphe. That is what that word has been translated as form. Now, morphe refers to outward manifestation of an inner reality. Let me explain that because it's very important for us to understand the meaning of this word morphe. Jesus pre-existed in the divine form of God, equal with God, the Father in every way. There is also another Greek word, which is known as schema. Now, this word is also often translated as form, but the meaning is quite different from that of morphe. When we say, who being in the morphe of God, what we are saying is, morphe is the essential form which never alters. Whereas schema is the outward form which changes from time to time and from circumstance to circumstance. Now, let me explain this. For example, the morphe of any human being is his humanity. This never changes. But his schema is continually changing. That's why we say a baby, a child, a boy, a youth, a man of middle age, and an old man. But they always have the morphe of humanity. But the outward schema changes all the time. So when we are talking about Jesus by his very nature and innate being, Jesus Christ is always, has been, and will forever be fully God. Now when we are saying innate, it is, it is not 
something he acquired after he came to this world, it was always with him. Jesus Christ was always and is and will always be fully God. Who being in the form of God, who being in the morphe of God, Jesus was fully God and that Jesus, he emptied himself. You know, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. We read this word and we, uh, we just take it for granted. This must, have, this must not have been so difficult for Jesus. But when, you, when we understand that Jesus was fully God, he did not think even for a while that he should grasp something from God or he should be selfish in his attitude. When we are talking about God-likeness, what is this God-likeness? God-likeness, what is that God-likeness? God-likeness, contrary to common understanding, is giving up his power and not to use his power, something to be used to his own advantage. That is God-likeness. He gave up his power. He gave up his privilege. He gave up his entitlement not to be used to his own advantage. You know, when we are looking at the worldly power, we, when, uh, when we have power, our tendency is to use our power for our own selfish interest. But very, it's very difficult for us to empty ourselves. So he, Jesus Christ refused to selfishly cling to his favored position as the divine son of God, nor view it as a prized position to be used for himself. Now, let me uh, illustrate this example by giving two worldly examples. Now, I'm, I'm going to the very lowest level of worldly power. You know, we all hear about housing society, uh, many societies, they come up and they allot land, they allot the plots. Okay, whenever they allot the plots, usually we see that the president, the secretary of the society will always keep for themselves the, uh, you know, the corner plot or the best plot uh, in, the, in that whole lot. You know, this is how we use our power. Uh, we always tend to use it for our benefit. Uh, whether they're entitled, yes, they're entitled. But Jesus Christ 
did not use his entitlement. He emptied himself. Uh, I'm not saying everyone is like that. I've also come across examples where uh, people have behaved like godlikeness. Um, I remember an, an incident in the Bible college. Uh, I think that somebody has sent gifts to all the staff in the Bible college. And uh, they wanted to distribute these gifts to the staff. So they went, how they'll go, first they'll go to the president, then they'll go to the vice president, and then they came to this particular professor. And he said, first you go and give it to everyone and you bring it to me, the last one that is left. You see, that is God-likeness. Giving up our privileges, giving up our entitlement, it's not going to be easy. That is God-likeness. This is how God acted as God. When we want to be, be like Jesus, this is how we are required to act, and this is how God acted. He gave up his privileges and his entitlements, and he came to this world. So we saw how God acted as God. He did not hold on to his power or to his entitlements. Now let us see the second aspect, how God acted as man. How God acted as man. Verse 7 says, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the form of a slave being made in human likeness. Although he had the morphe of God, which we just saw now, he made himself nothing by willingly taking upon himself the morphe of slave. He could have come to this world as a king, but he took upon himself the form of a slave. A slave in the Roman Empire was not a free person, but belonged to someone who was more powerful. A slave owned nothing, not even the clothes on his back. Our Lord Jesus Christ, he owned no land, no house, no boat, and no donkey. Jesus had to borrow a donkey when he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Jesus had to borrow a room for the Last Supper. Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb. All he owned were few personal clothes. Now, from Paul's perspective, this is how God shows his unconditional love for you and me, by emptying himself, by taking the form 
a slave. He is he's showing his unconditional love for you and me. Jesus Christ entered our history not as curios. Jesus Christ entered our history not as curios, as Lord, but as doulos, but as slave. A person without advantages, with no rights or privileges, but in servanthood to all. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who was God from eternity past, who existed before the creation of the world, could have come into this world very easily as, as a king. But he came to this world as doulos because of his unconditional love for you and me. And then the Bible is in verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Has God, he emptied himself. Has man, he humbled himself. Has God, he emptied himself. Has man, he humbled himself. Hereby, he not only reveals the mind of God, but also reveals what it means to be created in God's image. To bear his likeness and to have his mindset. God's mindset is taking the role of the slave for the sake of others. This is the mind of God. What is the mind of God? God's mindset is taking the role of the slave for the sake of others. When was the last time we gave up our privileges, our entitlement for the sake of others. What was legally permissible, allowed, when have we given up those privileges for the sake of others? That is the mind of God. Now, what is the mind of man? We saw what is the mind of God. Now we'll see what is the mind of man. Now, we go back to verse 3. The verse 3 describes the mind of God. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That is the mind of God, the mind of man. Selfish ambition and vain conceit describes the characteristics of a man's mind. Now, selfish ambition is listed first because it is the root of every other sin. 
Selfish ambition means self-centered and self-seeking. You know, we read in the scripture, by placing his will above God's will, Satan fell. And it was by placing their own wills above God's will, Adam and Eve first brought sin into the world. Now, selfish ambition has been at the root of every other sin. So that is the mind of man. Now, we should not, we should not uh, take this very lightly because selfish ambition is a destructive sin. What happens when we focus only on ourselves? When our focus is on ourselves, the natural tendency is to compare and compete. We compare with others, we want to compete with others because our focus is on ourselves. But the first casualty in this is the person who has the selfish ambition. You know, whether there is an opportunity to exhibit a selfish ambition or not, that is coming out of a sinful heart and it affects him. Even when we don't outwardly demonstrate or manifest or show that we have selfish ambition, if it is in our heart, now selfish ambition produces anger. It produces bitterness. It produces envy. It produces hatred. And it produces jealousy. Sometimes we tend to work on our anger, but in the process, we overlook the underlying factor which produces this anger. So selfish ambition produces anger, bitterness, envy, hatred, and jealousy. If you want to deal with jealousy, we have to see the underlying factor. Is it because of a selfish ambition? Now, the second characteristics, characteristic of a man, mind of man is vain conceit. Now, in the vain conceit, in selfish ambition, what we do, we pursue our personal goals. In vain conceit, we seek personal glory and praise. That's what's meant by vain conceit, personal glory and praise. You know, uh, it is very difficult if you are not careful uh, to know whether we nurture vain conceit or not. Because vain conceit by nature is self-deceptive. We will not even know whether we have vain conceit or not. Unless we are on constant guard, we'll not be able to make out whether we have vain conceit or not. Uh, you will be, be surprised to know vain conceit shows up 
even in the most holy moments. Vain conceit shows up even in the most holy moments. Uh, you, you don't have to believe me, but I'm sure we all of us believe the words of Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 6, 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. This is vain conceit. And Jesus Christ is warning us about what? Helping others, prayer and fasting. Because Jesus Christ is telling us, if you are not careful, then vain conceit will come. You can read the entire ch the chapter, uh, chapter, the verses following 6.1, and you can meditate and you can find out how dangerous is vain conceit. So what is the mind of man? Mind of man is occupied with selfish ambition and vain conceit. What is the mind of God? God, he emptied himself, he humbled himself. That is the mind of God. Now, how can we have the mind of Christ? The last one, how can we have the mind of Christ? Is it possible for us to have the mind of Christ? Now, the only way we can have the mind of Christ is by looking away from ourselves to our Lord Jesus Christ. Looking away from ourselves to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is telling us if the mind of God does not melt our heart, we can never have the mind of Christ. That's why he is describing the mind of God. He's telling us how God thinks as God. He's describing God-likeness. If God-likeness does not melt our heart, we cannot have the mind of Christ. It is only when we look away from ourselves, from our selfish ambition, from our vain conceit, and we look to our Lord Jesus Christ, we can walk in joyful freedom from both of these vices. God has designed us to be satisfied with Jesus' glory, not our glory. We have so many idols in this world which, which attracts our attention. Sometimes knowingly, unknowingly, they're good things, so we have made them into an idol. So we tend to derive our satisfaction from these idols, and these idols can never satisfy us. For whether it is my job, whether it is my designation, whether it is my ministry, whether it is my spouse, whether it is my children, whether it is my family heritage, these things cannot satisfy me. 
the only thing that can satisfy me is Jesus' glory, not our glory. We always say the prayer, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. We can really love the Lord only when we understand God-likeness. The more we gaze at Jesus, the more we look at Jesus, the more we'll have the mind of Christ. Paul knew that we cannot have this on our own. That's why in verse 5 he says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And he goes on to explain the life of Jesus, who Jesus was and what he did for us. And that's what he's telling us in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. We saw God humbled himself. God became man. He humbled himself. Now, humility is a unique Christian virtue. In other belief systems, humility is not considered as a positive trait. It is considered as a shortcoming. It is weakness. So humility, when we are talking about humility, um, it is, it is a Christian virtue. In Greek literature, you don't find uh, anything good about humility. Humility is considered as weakness. But when we are talking about humility, we are not talking about false modesty. In other words, humility doesn't mean that we should become a doormat. Humility is basically understanding our our position, we are created beings. We are created beings. Too often we tend to behave like as though we are God in control of everything. But we are just created beings and we have this unique privilege of standing before the creator. So as created beings to completely depend and trust in our God. We should understand our weakness as well as our glory. Though we are created beings, we have been made in the image of God. And that's our glory. And we need to understand the limit. So true humility is not being focused on oneself, but each one looking to the interests of the others. Now, when we read this verse, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, or in some other version you read, rather in humility, uh, consider others better than yourselves. Now, this, is, this verse does not mean that we try to evaluate people and then we say, they are better than I am. 
the, the meaning of the verse is not that, that we need to evaluate. You know, we come to the church and we say, all are better than me. That is not humility. Because estimating others itself is a vice. It's not a virtue. You know, estimating that others are better, you evaluate them, that is, that is not a, uh, that's not a virtue. That's not what this verse means. What this verse means is, when we consider others' needs more than ours, that is humility. When we, when we are able to come to a place where we find others' needs are more important than our needs, that is what is not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. It is not saying, this verse is not teaching us, you estimate each person and say that you are better than, they are better than I am, and that is humility. That's not humility. What this verse is teaching us is, we need to see the needs in others, and that need, when it becomes more important than our needs, that's what this verse is teaching us. That is what the mind of God, that's what's the mind of Christ. Now, the great tragedy of the church is not that rich Christians do not care about the poor, but that rich Christians do not know the poor. That is the tragedy of the church. It's not that rich Christians do not care about the poor, but that rich Christians do not know the poor. You know, wherever God has placed us, let's learn to develop attitudes of selflessness and humility. Wherever God has placed us, we don't have to go out to find the needs in others. Wherever God has placed us in that particular place, let us have that selflessness and humility so that we may consider the needs of others as priority, and that is the mind of Christ. And that is the way things work in the kingdom of God. Because in the kingdom of God, by giving, a person receives. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. By giving, a person receives. By serving, he is served. By losing his life, he finds it. By dying, he lives. By humbling himself, he is exalted. That is the kingdom of life, kingdom life. As, as children of the kingdom, this should be our priorities that by giving, we should know this, by giving a person receives, by serving, he is served, by losing his life, he finds it, by dying, he lives, by humbling himself, he is exalted. When we do this, it's like, you know, as, as night follows day, you know, when you give, 
you receive. When you serve, you are being served. By when you lose your life, you find it. By dying, you live. And by when we are humble, when I humble myself, I am exalted. In other words, self-sacrifice comes first before the self is exalted by God. Self-sacrifice comes first before the self is exalted by God. You know, if you read this passage carefully, it's talking about Jesus Christ, who was God from eternity past, he was God. And he did not consider his equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So he emptied himself. Not only he emptied himself, he came to this world and he humbled himself, taking the form of a slave. And then he went to the cross. And on the third day, he rose again. And, and when we read this passage, it clearly says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. In the kingdom of God, this is how promotion comes. When we humble ourselves, promotion comes. When we enter the kingdom of, when we feel, oh Lord, I cannot stand before you but for what Jesus has done for me. When we understand our depraved condition, and then we understand what Jesus has done for us. That's how God lifts us up. It is not by doing things. It's not in us. When we depend on God totally, oh God, I cannot change myself. Spirit of God, I need you. I depend on you. And that's how God lifts, lifts us up. When we depend totally, totally, totally on God, If someone says Jesus Christ was always God, even in this world, he was God. He did so many miracles. He fed 5,000 people. Uh, he restored the eyes of the blind. Yeah, but if you read the scriptures carefully, he did all this with the power of the Holy Spirit because he emptied himself. When he came to this world, he emptied himself. And it is only with the power of the Holy Spirit he did all those miracles. He depended totally on God the Father. In fact, Jesus taught us how to live as human beings in this world. He, is, he has shown us how to live as human beings how to have the mind of God and how to live as God intend, intended us to live in this world. So in the kingdom of God, the surest way up is by stepping down. And the surest way to win the praise of God is by steadfastly serving others. If you want to receive well done, good and faithful servant. 
It is only by steadfastly serving others we can receive the praise of God. It is only by stepping down we are lifted up. It is only by serving others we bring the smile on the face of God. So discipleship calls for servanthood and self-sacrifice for the sake of others. Discipleship calls for servanthood and self-sacrifice for the sake of others. I just want to draw attention to the song that we sing quite often. And uh, this song sums up the message. This is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him. To bring our lives as a daily offering of worship to the servant king. This is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him, to bring our lives as a daily offering of worship to the servant king. As a servant king, he emptied himself. As a servant king, he humbled himself. As a servant king, he gave his life for you and me. And he is calling us to follow him so that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. What a great privilege to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. Are we using these hands and feet to meet our own needs, selfish needs? I'm not saying we should not work for ourselves, but is our focus entirely on ourselves? Or are we there to bring glory to our Lord Jesus? I just want to make two quick applications to end this message. The first one is be humble because God humbled himself. One of the best things we can choose to live humbly. I said humility is a unique Christian virtue and, and our God humbled himself. He humbled himself. And as children of God, God expects us to have this humility in us. So just to help us uh, think about this humility, I just want to list down some seven signs. And the list is not complete. This list is not exhaustive. It's not complete. But each one of us can just examine our lives and see whether I'm humble or not. The first one is you are teachable. So the Holy Spirit should be able to teach us. Without humility, we'll not be able to learn even from the Holy Spirit. The second sign is you can be corrected without defending yourself. You don't have to defend. When we, when we do a mistake, we should be able, and if we, are, if, if we can be corrected, that's sign of humility. The third one is no job is too small for you. No job 
is too small for you. Because we work for our Lord Jesus Christ. It is not our designation that matters. No job is too small for you. The fourth one is you don't have to be right. Because if I, if I understand that I don't have to be right, then I don't have, then I know that I, I don't have to defend myself. So we are weak people. We are fallen people. We have shortcomings. So we don't have to be right. The fifth one is you freely admit your flaws, mistakes, and failures. That's a sign of humility. The sixth one is you don't promote yourself and you can add your family. You don't promote yourself. The seventh one is you let other people have a better story than yours. You let other people have a better story than yours. In fact, off late, even in the multinational companies, they are encouraging their executives to have the seventh, seventh one. You allow your juniors to do well. People who are under you to come up, give them an opportunity, let them come up. That's how they are teaching the modern day leaders. And as children of God, we should have this trait. You let other people have a better story than yourself. As I told you, in selfish ambition, we always tend to compare and compete. If we have selfish ambition, we will never allow someone else to have a better story than ourselves. In case, if they happen to have a better story, then we'll become jealous. We'll feel unhappy. So God expects us to allow other people to have a better story than ourselves. We need to be humble. If you want to have the mind of Christ, this is the mind of Christ. This is the mind of Christ. God expects us to have that mind of Christ in, in, in everything we do. The second application is serve others. How do we serve others? It is by serving, we are being served in the kingdom of God. So serve others, what God expects from others. Let us share the gospel, the good news. Let us show the love of Christ to the unlovable. Because when Christ loved us, we were not lovable people. We were unlovable. Even now we fail. We cannot say all the time we are lovable people. We fail. That's our frailty. But God continues to love us unconditionally. So God says, God expects us to show the love of Christ 
to the unlovable. Let's meet the needs of others. Consider others better than yourselves. That's, that verse means, let's meet the needs of others. Consider others better than yourselves. Let's, let us consider others' needs as a priority. Let's be the hands and feet of Jesus. Let us be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. If we have the mind of Christ, we will grow in our humility and we will also increasingly, we will tend to serve others. That is the mind of Christ. It is not to show off. It is not to show off that we are more powerful. We are more influential. We are more prosperous. That's not the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is just a mind of humility and a mind that serves others. Even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We are called to be followers of Jesus. We are called to be disciples of Jesus. And we are called to be his hands and his feet in this world. And we can have his hands and feet only if we have the mind of Christ. So let us use our time. Let us use our treasures. And let us use our talents that the Lord has given us. It is not something that belongs to us. Whatever time, 24 hours is a time that God gives us. Whatever treasure we have received from God and whatever talents we have, God has blessed us. Yes, we invest, we try to develop, all those things are right, but God has uh, endowed us with those talents and we have received all our time, all our treasures, all our talents from the Lord so let us use all our time, treasures, and talents to reach the world for Christ.